Welcome to another episode of Speaking Duck on the Never Sleeps Network. I'm your host, Alex Ross. We sat down with beer baroness Crystal Luxmore. Toronto's own Crystal Luxmore is a beer and travel writer, certified Cicerone, Prudhomme Beer Somali, and beer judge. As a person who doesn't really like beer, I had to bring Crystal in because she really has this unbelievable way of explaining the differences in the taste and the production. We talk about breweries and what's happening behind your local bar. We get a lot of insight in this episode and more and more we're bringing on a lot of especially women who have an amazing influence on the Toronto food and beverage scene. I talked to Asia Sachs a few weeks ago on this podcast, and that's an episode to be released soon. We talk about Crystal. We talk about these important women who are really cornering some amazing products and some amazing events and teachings, and all you have to do is reach out to them. Crystal's at crystalluxmore.com, but you're going to hear how amazing she is behind the mic. Have a listen. Thank you for checking out another episode of Speaking Duck Podcast on the Never Sleeps Network. So thank you very much for coming. Thanks for having me, Alex. I really need you here for so many reasons. As somebody who goes out pretty regularly and enjoys a cocktail or a glass of wine on the occasion, something I tend to avoid but I don't want to anymore is beer. I really want to start enjoying beer more, and that's why I'm hoping you can open my eyes a little bit today. Yes, it is time. Open my taste buds a little bit today. Mm -hmm. And we're going to start with the beer basics. I think my problem and maybe a lot of other people's issues with trying anything new is too much variety. There's way too much out there. What's a lager? What's a pilsner? What's a pale ale? What's an ale? What's a British beer? Why do I drink it warm? What do I drink cold? What do I, what's a micro bubble? That's the newest thing that's like blowing my mind right now. Why is there a beer with miniature bubbles, like smaller bubbles than there should be? Are we talking about a Molson product? We we are allowed to name products here. So yes, it definitely is a Molson product. I once saw this smaller bubbled product and I'm like, is this a gimmick? Is it like, can a smaller bubble occur? Maybe I'm interpreting this incorrectly. I haven't done any research on the micro bubble, but my guess would be that a micro bubble is micro bullshit. <laughs> We're off to the races. I would agree. I mean, as somebody who doesn't know that much, well, about anything, let alone about the beers that are on the market today and something like a big brewer like Molson compared to a small batch brewer, are they trying to compete now with the small batch brewers with all these little gimmicks? Because it's been in the news as of late that a lot of these big batch brewers like Budweiser in the States is almost losing a small percentage. Let's be honest here. They're always going to be a conglomerate. They're always going to be a large market for them and their baby boomer market. But, you know, with the new surge of microbrewery breweries, uh, small batch brewing, um, and all these types of hipster one-off batches that seem to be coming mm -hmm. more popular, these major labels like Molson may have something to be concerned about. Maybe not right now in the forefront, but 10 years from now, 15 years from now. What's your opinion on the competition and the gimmicks and what do we have to look out for? Is it is Molson still a reliable company here in Canada? Coors, Budweiser? Tell me what you think. Yeah, that's a loaded question and it's a complicated one. I think Molson is 
you know, founded here in Montreal and still partly owned by the Molson family, but it's also um, owned by, you know, a global conglomerate, like a partnership with the U.S., hence the name Molson Coors. But most of their, like all of our Canadian beers that we drink, and let's keep in mind that about 90% of the beers consumed in Canada are big batch beers. So as a beer writer and a beer critic, I really hate to piss on those beers because I think it's really close-minded when most Canadians most of the time are still drinking Molson Canadian or Budweiser. And I think they're perfectly good beers that are actually quite difficult to brew in large batches to make them taste so light and um, so almost uh, delicate in flavor, you could say. Um over and over and over again. That consistency is really hard to achieve. Uh, So I think that could be applauded. And the fact that they employ a lot of people in Canada is something to be celebrated. Good point. I think there's a lot of like poo-pooing on huge industrial everything and that um, a a big feeling of I only buy local, local is great, anything too big, I don't like. Um, Even people at... um, Larger craft breweries now are telling me that some of their customers aren't buying their products anymore because Mill Street feels too big for them or Steam Whistle. They're too big and they only do one thing and now it's boring. So I feel like that's a little bit dangerous to slag off a company for being successful. At the same time, I think that for sure there's a ton of competition and big brewers are very cognizant of it and they're being extremely aggressive in how they are competing with craft brewers. Um, one major issue is at the taps. So, you know, the taps at your bar, it's not just about whatever beer somebody wants to put on tap for years and years. Um, brewers have gone in and had, you know, discounted kegs, given huge marketing incentives. Uh, one ex Labatt employee told me that back in the eighties, they used to just go in with briefcases full of money. Now I can't confirm that. And I think things have changed, but it's hard for smaller breweries to compete with that level of aggression for those taps. And keep in mind at a restaurant you go into, there might be five taps, there might be two taps, there might be 12 taps. And so there's not that much base for your beer to be put on tap. So you have to pony up or get out my friend who i'm only calling him my friend now because he's been recently interviewed on this show joel mccharles Mm -hmm. he runs a cookbook and blog called well preserved it's about buying local preserving it the ability to have a summer feel in a winter dish by opening up something you preserved months before he says to me you know sometimes i just want a flavorless pilsner Sometimes I just want to, like you were saying, these delicate or, or maybe lack thereof or the fact that sometimes you just want to crack open a cheap beer because that's what's around or, you know, sometimes it's not a big priority to be getting something that's a small batch. And there's a reason why companies like Labatt and Molson still exist. I mean, the beers have obviously are tried, tested and true. They are for sure. They're rigorously tested for quality all the time. I mean, they have, you know... Um, state-of-the-art laboratories. They have a ton of money to throw at quality control and things like pulling their beer off the shelf if it's not up to code or if it's past its expiry date. Some smaller brewers don't have that. Some small brewers, you know, they might put out a batch that's not quite where they want it to be, but they're going to have to sell it because it's really, really difficult for them to throw out a whole batch of beer and suck up that cost. Um, You probably wouldn't find that with a bigger brewer. Is it true that Mill Street, which originated, its origins are in Toronto, mm-hmm. from the distillery district, 
are they still only producing beer there or they're producing beer for a larger market now because of their popularity outside of the distillery district now? Yeah, they have a major plant in Scarborough and they also brew in the distillery. The distillery beer, I think, is only produced for their brew pub and for the beer hall next door. Is there going to be a major difference between the beer that I get from there at the brew pub or that I get from the Scarborough location that I'm being that I'm purchasing at the beer store, let's say? For the same beer, no. I mean, the brew pub, it's a smaller system. Um, and I mean, keep in mind, even in the bigger system, it's still kind of handcrafted stuff. But the temperature controls and the production quality should be about the same, I think, from one to the other. I would think it would be very difficult for me if you put, um, you know, a tank house that was brewed at the brew pub and a tank house that was brewed in the production facility to taste them both and taste any discernible difference. I haven't done it, but I would I would say that to most of us, no way. And even to experts, hopefully not. I mean, that's what breweries are all about, especially as they grow, is keeping that production consistent because consumers who love tank house are going to notice but a lot of times now when breweries grow their smaller facilities will produce really they they get the chance to loosen up and produce a bunch of specialty beers one-off beers do a lot of experimental brewing because it's a smaller system so they don't have to put out you know giant two fours of mill street organic all the time that's where we see like if you go down to the mill street brewery or the mill street brew pub and the distillery you'll probably taste beers that you can't buy in the lcbo well for sure you will and we're going to get to that a little bit later about beers you cannot buy locally sorry beers that you can buy locally that aren't necessarily in the lcbo or the beer store now i guess that Leads me to my other question in the same kind of realm. Is there a discernible difference in taste or flavor or beer in general if I'm drinking a Guinness from a can, a Guinness from the tap, a Guinness from a bottle? And I mean, I'm just using Guinness because I know for sure that they have every single form of containment. So if I were to grab a a beer that's in a can versus a bottle versus the tap, what are the major differences between the three? Well, with a can and a bottle, it depends on the type of beer. For Guinness, it's a little bit of a special case because it's it's uh, pushed out of the tap by nitrogen. And that's why Guinness has that really, really thick, foamy head. And it's perceived to be really sort of like a meal in a glass. It's a really hearty beer. Um, nitrogen's a different gas than carbon dioxide, which gives the beer kind of bigger bubbles. Nitrogen gives it those soft, really tight bubbles and that really tight head. And that kind of like silky Irish stout creamy mouthfeel. It's like a lower level of carbonation. And then to get that feeling in the can for Guinness takes a lot of engineering. So they they put a little nitrogen kind of doohickey in the can. And when you open it up, it kind of activates. And then as you pour, you're supposed to get that same pour that you get from from the tap. Is it the same? I don't think so. Um, most, especially Guinness diehards, will only go to certain Irish pubs that know how to pour a proper pint and manage their kegs properly. Um, and even from one bar to another, the beer can taste different because it's all about the temperature that you keep your keg room at, the condition, the cleanliness of your beer lines. Because to get from you know the tap to where the keg is stored could be two floors down and there's all these plastic hoses that your beer runs through to get there. So how vigilant are they about sort of uh, keg maintenance and rotation and keeping the gas levels at the proper sort of carbonation levels that the brewer intends them 
it varies from bar to bar. So some bars are much worse than others. As an expert, can you tell when maintenance is the issue? Can you tell? Have you sent a beer back and said, I know that your tap has been cleaned or your pipes or your temperature of your keg is wrong? Uh, I'm not that presumptuous, but yeah, we are trained to tell that. I mean, when we taste off flavors, one of the, uh, basically they spike a, say a, a really nondescript beer, a light lager with a spike called Dirty Draft Line. And Dirty Draft Line is basically, it tastes like vinegar and microwave popcorn butter mixed together. Oh, wow. So if you get a beer that tastes sort of acidic and a little bit slick, and it's a little bit flat, slightly buttery, and it smells that way, then you probably know that it's dirty draft line. Now, you keep saying we and the words trained. Tell us about your background and what brought you to be the beer blogger that you are. Sure. So I am a journalist by trade. I have been a freelance journalist for about seven years. And everyone always told me, you know, Crystal, you need to get a beat. Because I would just write a new story on a completely different topic every single week. And it was like writing an essay in university, you know, the level of research I needed to do from scratch. And I liked it, but it got really tiring. But I could never, ever decide what to report on all the time. It just felt like too much of a commitment until I was in Sydney, Australia, visiting my sister and my best friend. And I wanted to write a story so I could write off my, you know, my flight on my taxes. And I'm thinking, what can I write about Australia? You know, a travel story that's never been written before. Everyone's heard about wine. Everyone's heard about the Great Barrier Reef. And so a friend of mine was really into craft beer over there and paying all this money for $20 beers and no one could believe it. And it was about the same time, about five years ago, when craft beer was really booming um, here in Ontario. My best friend actually organized for us to visit eight breweries in two days in Sydney. And we've always drank a ton of beer together since high school, since we were far too young. Um, and so we loved it. And she looked at me at the end of the eighth brewery and said, Crystal, if you don't become an effing beer writer when you get home, I'm going to kill you. This is the best job. Now, we had why? been We had been just kind of taken behind the scenes by these brewers who were letting us throw hops into the fermenter. And for the first time, really, like we both love beer and we drink a ton of it. But we had no idea that the, dif the difference between a lager and an ale or what makes an IPA an IPA, um, especially the beer and food connection is really big in Australia. So we went to a couple of brew pubs where they paired five um, beer samples with five different cheeses or they did one with fish and one with dessert. And I had never consumed beer like that. I always drank beer right from the bottle, six at a time. You know, I'd buy something, whatever was new in the beer, sort of try it out. But that's about as experimental as I got. And so when I saw the kind of craft and amount of work and passion that goes into making all of these beers, all of the history behind them, and the fact that I could enjoy it at my table and really sort of get into the flavors of beer, it just was like a whole new universe for me. And I couldn't believe that I could get a job writing about it. Is it true that Foster's is a beer that local Australians don't even really consume? It's kind of like a a gimmick that people not from Australia kind of buy into, thinking that it's like an overdone Australian kind of local thing, but really it's the exact opposite. It's like yes. deep dish pizza in, in Chicago. 
Yeah, I love deep dish pizza in Chicago, and I eat it whenever I go there. But I don't know if a lot of Chicagoans are, yeah, they, are in those places. They don't. Yeah, um, right. They aren't. <laughs> that's exactly it, right? Like, do you go to Australia and see anybody drinking Fosters? No, Probably not. No, the, most of them do not drink Fosters, and they're very proud of that fact. Right. Yeah. But listen, uh, we can talk about your love for deep dish pizza another time. I just want to know more about you came home. Yes. So I came home and a lucky set of circumstances popped up. The Grid, uh, which is now defunct, was relaunching. So it was iWeekly. It was turning into The Grid. Some editors there asked me to write for them, said, what about a real estate column? I was like, oh, God, I really don't want to write real estate. But, you know, I could use a column. This seems like a cool paper. And my husband said, what do you want to write about? And I was like, I want to write about beer, but they're not going to let me write about beer. And here's a million reasons why. I don't know anything about it, blah, blah, blah. They don't. They didn't ask for me to write about beer. And he's like, just ask them, Crystal. Right. So I did. And they said they liked the idea. I went out, wrote three sample columns, asked a whole bunch of really basic questions to a whole bunch of very important brewers and got the gig. And then I wrote, I was their beer columnist for four years. And while I did that, I decided I should learn something about beer. So I I studied with Roger Mittag, who runs the Prudhomme program, because it's like an in-class study program on beer. Um, and you can become a Prudhomme beer sommelier at the end of that. So I did that. And after that, I wanted to write the Cicerone, which is the American uh, beer sommelier designation, because it's kind of adjudicated by a third party. It's marked by five different people, and it's pretty rigorous. So I wanted to know that I could pass that test and the blind tasting component is tougher um, than the Prudhomme. So I, I just wanted to, I wanted to get that under my belt. So I wrote that about four months later and got that. So now I'm a certified Cicerone, a Prudhomme beer sommelier, but mostly um, I write about beer and I do a lot of corporate events and private beer tastings and I run a beer school and Oh, tell us all yeah. about that stuff. I want to know about the private events, the beer tasting. I, I personally need some, like, beer 101. So if I'm looking to get into it, what kind of event are you throwing that I could come to? Um, I run Lexi's Beer School at Tequila Bookworm uh, seasonally, so three or four times a year. I'm not sure when my next one will be, probably, like, later this winter. And I... Do stuff like hops 101. So we rub hops and taste different varieties of hops in beer and learn about those. Um, I did one in extreme brewing. So some kind of weird and wild ingredients and techniques that are used in craft beers. And we tasted through those together. So it's like a guided tasting series with sort of, I like I try to pick kind of trendier, more fun themes that are a little bit more hands-on. And so we just, there's about 20 students or so I guess and we just taste them all together and I just sell tickets to one class at a time so it's really casual second floor of tequila bookworm a little beer bar one of my favorite beer bars in the city very humble at Queen and Spadina and then I also my private tastings you know I have clients like golf clubs and museums and corporate clients like law firms and so I'll just go in there and do a workshop on beer um, sometimes I'll do like a blind tasting challenge so people work in teams and have to sort of match up different beer styles with different descriptions so it's sort of like team building with booze which is fun and you also get to build your palate so I do all kinds of stuff and how do you present the basics to these first timers or these people who are just learning about what hops are what the differences in beer are. 
How do you present that to them? Only because we're going to get into that a little bit ourselves. How do I know what the difference between a pilsner and an ale or a lager or a stout? I usually start with beer can be divided into two families, much like red and white wine. So um, you can think of ales as red wines. And underneath that umbrella, there are about 40 different beer styles from stouts to pale ales and India pale ales, British ales. That's one whole group. And like red wines, they're fermented warmer and their yeasts are more active at those hotter temperatures. So they throw off more compounds and phenolics. So their yeasts generate lots of beautiful smells, a lot of fruity smells, some spiciness. So you get a lot from the yeast as well as from beer's other three ingredients. Do you know what those three ingredients are, Alex? Um, barley. Yes. Hops. Yes. Yeast. We did yeast. Barley. Oat. No. Water. Water. Exactly. It's really basic. Yes. Um, and barley is like one type of malt. You could use other, you can use oats, like you said, or you can use wheat. Um, so really any type of grain, but barley being the most common, the preferred one, uh, for a number of reasons. You were trying to trick me with water. I I know water is so basic. You don't even think about it. I know. You don't even think about it. Air is oxygen. One of the other flavors. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that's that's the red wine family are ales. The white wine family of beer are lagers. Um, so lagers are fermented with at colder temperatures with a different yeast strain. Because the yeast strain is fermented really cold, it's usually very, very clean. So you don't taste the yeast at all. Instead, it's an expression of the hops and the malts that are in the beer. Usually they ferment cold and they condition for much longer. So it could take you like two to four days to crank out an ale. Um, from brewing it to bottling, more like, I guess, four days. Um, But with a lager, you're talking at least seven, which is one of the reasons why we see more ales than lagers because it's much, much less time in the brew house. So when you're starting a brewery, it's easier. Plus, they're more popular styles for consumers right now. But yeah, lagers are, they're, they're cold conditioned and their yeast works really, really slowly, but it kind of eats away at all of any kind of little spicy or fruity flavor so you get a really really clean and crisp beer that's really an expression like i said of those two major ingredients but there are some lagers out there that would surprise you what is the biggest factor of why someone's gonna like a beer is it everyone is so different or are different beers i mean it's hard to explain but i grew up in a british home with warm tasteless beer and my uncles swear by it and I don't get it and as a younger person I want something lighter in taste maybe even fruitier something that's not going to weigh me down and I like to get buzzed on maybe one or two or three I don't like to be keeping drinking lighter beers or or one or two it's not something I'm I'm drinking with a meal on average you know what is it a generational thing is it because I come from a British family. I mean, you go to different countries all over the world where beer is just a regular staple and, and, you know, so is wine and everything. But I mean, it's so hard to 
be a Canadian and, and not see Molson on the table and not see Labatt's. And then when you grow up and you become this 20-something-year-old with a bank account, oh, there's Bose and there's Flying Monkey and there's Bellwoods. And, you know, I feel like it's so hard to determine what I like because there's just too many flavors. How do I find out what's the best way to know exactly my Pilsner guy? Am I a stout guy? Am I a lager guy? I know it's something that basically is saying, what do you like? Mm-hmm. But I feel mm-hmm. like everything, even when I choose between all those differentials, there's just so much more to, to, to learn and, and find out in these products. I just think, personally, I'm overwhelmed. And it yes. just causes me to be like, oh, you know what? Just give me my vodka soda and I'm a happy guy. Yeah. You know, I'm just here to get a little buzz anyway. Yeah, it feels like work because there's too much choice. I know what you mean. I think one one thing you could do is you could go to a, a brew pub like Bellwoods um, and they have like a sampler. So you you can get, you know, four or five beers from their tap list and then try them and pay attention to the style. So Tell me you more taste about that. five of them. Yeah. So they all, you know, you can get like a three ounce sample of each beer or two and a half ounce. And you can do this at a lot of beer bars as well. And so you can choose, um, I would choose like a lager. And so under lagers, you could do a Pilsner, um, try a pale ale and then try a Belgian style. Um, which could be, see, and that's where it gets tricky because you're like, what is a Belgian? But I love Saison's. So if you can find a Saison, that would be great. And then maybe an English beer. They're not all warm and dreadful. They are delicious. And most beers actually meant to be served at that English, um, sort of cellar red wine temperature. So your uncles are not wrong. Yeah. I I know they're not wrong in theory, Mm -hmm. but you have to explain to me how someone can enjoy something like that at a room temperature or a cellar temperature as you were referring to it just seems to me it's mind-boggling i think i'm i think i'm ingrained in the idea that we have very i mean for lack of a better term flavorless pilsners or watered down beers that are either coming from the states or, or canada that when they're at their peak coldness they're just so much more enjoyable because it's a refreshing thing it's a hot summer day you know you almost don't taste the developed flavors as much you're just tasting an easy drinkable beverage and i think on average people will rather have something peak coldness that they can just easily drink than go out of their way to find something that they might have to spend a little bit more on or you know really know what they appreciate unless it's in their own home or they're at a restaurant and maybe some beer sommelier is really laying it down for them of exactly why they're going to pair this with their meal yeah, I think, I mean, most beer, besides, of course, those lagers and wheat beers generally are meant to be drunk kind of straight out of the fridge or very, very cold. And that's because they're like knock them backable, um, drink them as fast as you can, or wheat beers are really refreshing in the summertime and you want something that's cold. You don't right. want to be drinking a warm beer in the summer. But the other beer styles, much like, much like wine, are meant to be smelled. So you can't really taste a beer unless you're smelling it. So my number one rule for sort of enjoying beer and liking it more is to always pour it from the bottle into the glass, no matter if it is, you know, blue light or, well, maybe not blue light, but unless it's like an American light (laughs) lager, then pour it from the bottle into the glass. And that does a couple of things. Number one, it lets you smell the beer. So we can pick up about 10,000 different aromas with our nose and only six different flavors I think now we've discovered a new one with our tongues and so if you're not smelling a beer you're really not tasting it at all especially um, now a lot of beers are made with 
hops and they add hops much, much later in the brewing process specifically so that you can get that aroma. And that really alters your experience with the beer. Are those those IPAs that I keep hearing that about? That is correct, sir. Well, see, I know some stuff. Yeah. And even with Belgian beers, uh, those crazy yeasty phenolics, it's all in the aroma. So you're really missing out on the complexity, the beautiful complexity of those beers if you're not sniffing them. So I like to kind of do like a drive-by sniffing. So you kind of graze your nose over the glass and then a couple of big hounds tooth, hounds dog-like sniffs. And just get right in there and then sip away. So it's really will change your experience with the beer. I guarantee it if you do this. And the other beautiful thing about pouring beer into a glass is that it releases carbonation from the bottle. So I know you talked to me before about being a little bit bloated with beer and feeling Ugh, really full. The worst. If you are chugging it from the bottle, you're not releasing gas. And there's extra sort of carb- gas put into the top of the bottle or the top of the can before it goes out because they want to purge all of the oxygen from the beer because oxygen spoils beer. So it's over carbonated on purpose. And the brewer thinks that you're going to open his bottle or her bottle and pour it into the glass, releasing some of that carbonation and dumbing down your bloat. So if you're not doing that, you're going to feel a little bit more bloated, a little bit more gassy. So I really like to do that. And it also gives you a nice big thick head on your beer. And when we're talking beer, head is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Let's talk more about that. Let's talk about stylistically why Guinness is so famous for their head versus just a regular draft. Yeah, I mean, every beer style head is a little bit different. It depends on sort of the carbonation. With Guinness, it's all the carbonation that makes that head um, so thick and luscious. Other beers, it's the protein in the beer um, that gives it really, really, really good foam. Um, Usually, if there is one or two inches of foam on the top of your beer, that's a very, very good thing. It's a sign of a well-made beer. And um, if you go to a pub where they fill up your pint glass all the way to the top and then scrape off all the foam it's not the way that it should be served because you can't smell the beer because you're having liquid all the way to the top so there's no room for your nose to get in there and get those aromas and also the head protects the beer from all the oxygen in the air and keeps it fresher longer wow like armor there for a reason like beer armor yeah. Like, I, I see that a lot in Italian places when they're serving Stella's and they're overflowing the head almost. Mm-hmm. And then they're taking a fork or a knife yes. or whatever and scraping off the top completely. I guess because, in a sense, they're like, as a consumer, you want to have the most amount of beer per glass per consumer. Yeah, for years in Canada, we've been trained like, hey, man, don't rip me off. Fill it up to the top. Yeah. You know, and that's how even when I used to go to bars back in the day, that's how it was. And I'll go visit my parents in Collingwood. And I went to the snowmobiling bar and that's what they did. And I was horrified. It was one of the worst beers I've ever had. It was ice cold for the style and there was no foam. And yeah, I didn't want to be like, that's not how you pour a beer. Let me show you. Because I've never worked in a bar and that's just really pretentious and assholey. So I drank it. Is it hard to be on your end sometimes when you want to, you know, you have expertise, you've trained yourself and sometimes you go to a bar. I mean, it's, I personally am a food snob. I, I, you know, this is a food show. I'm not a chef. I've worked in restaurants, but I'm far from an executive chef or a restaurateur or a restaurant manager. But I have an opinion. And I like things a certain way. And in a service world that we obviously live in today, it is easy for me to, I, I, don't, I don't like the word complain, um, but if I like a, something a certain way I, and I'm paying for it, I'm going to get it. 
the way I want it. And this is, yeah, well, this is not like a Burger King or a Harvey's, uh, (laughs) you know, have your way kind of like consumer ideal. I think it's just in in general, if, if I'm a patron and I'm expecting something and I don't get it the way I expect it, I, it's hard for me to bite my tongue. Very hard for me. And I, and I think most restaurateurs and most bartenders and, and most, you know, chefs will tell you that they appreciate that kind of criticism. I mean, maybe not all of them, but I would like to think the ones that know how to take it the best appreciate it and therefore grow from it or know how to. Sometimes it, it, I might be the only one. And maybe if I'm a patron that's a regular patron, they're going to attend to my needs more because they know I'm going to come back. Is it hard for you to bite your tongue? Is it, you know, are you, like, I'm not trying to say that, you know, watch out, Crystal Luxmore is coming to your bar to tell you how things are done. But I mean, in the same time, like, you're a patron, too. Like, before you are a beer blogger, you like to appreciate good beer for whatever reason. When you see something not done correctly, what do you do? Do you do you tend not to go back? Do you tend not to order the same thing twice? It depends where I am. In Collingwood at the snowmobiling bar, I just felt like that was not their jam for me to, like their customers probably wanted their beer filled all the way to the top and they didn't want to be educated in why two inches of foam was important. Yeah. Yeah. They're there to get, to have as much beer in them as possible. Yeah. I I just, I knew it. And so for that one, I was like, okay, well, you know, that's how you run your establishment. I respect that. Um, Whereas say I'm in the city and... Uh, the server gives me the completely wrong information about a beer, oh. or doesn't know what's on the tap list. And you know that's the that's a scary thing because yeah, you are so educated. Yeah, then I just ask another question because I want I want to know what's in my glass. I, I just sort of judge it on that. But if the beer is off, I will send it back. And usually I'll say, look, I think you know this is why it's off, or it smells like a little bit buttery, and just leave it at that. You know. If, I don't say like I'm a certified cicerone. Would you like some professional no, feedback I, on why I think your beer might be wrong? Yeah. But I know that other cicerones do do that, and in a very constructive way. I just feel a little bit shy and uncomfortable. Okay. But I think that it's very good, and it's really good to be critical of beer that is coming out and is not 100 percent perfect because you're paying seven, eight, nine dollars a pint now. Yeah, it, it, at the least you're yeah. paying that much. Yeah, so if you're going to charge that much, you better be serving it in the correct way. Noted. That is the best answer I could have asked for. So that actually brings me to my next question with restaurants Mm -hmm. and serving beer, pairing beers with meals. You know, I've always kind of learned that beer is something to be enjoyed maybe on its own, maybe after a meal. To be honest, sometimes... Again, referring back to the whole bloating or, or just feeling full or even like you said, Guinness itself is like a meal in a glass. Sometimes I feel like it could be a little bit overwhelming in a meal to have, you know, a full on steak dinner and I mean, even a glass of wine or even a glass of beer. It's just all of it in one shot is a lot to take in. Oh, you got to do it. You do. Yeah. That's how it no, is. No, it has to happen. So maybe there's just got a proper balance that you're going to tell how me How can a you have a steak more. without a glass of wine or a beer? It just doesn't, it doesn't add up for me at all. I mean, tell us why. Like, it, it, what? why do I need to start drinking more alcohol pairs pairing with my meals? 
Um, I just think that at least with beer, the flavor matches are there and they're so available to you. Beer is, you know, the alcohol in it makes it a little bit more intense. So it can match the intensity of a lot of the dishes that you're talking about, like steak. And beer is so versatile um, because, you know, you can get something like 100 different barley malts or more, all sort of the same piece of barley that's roasted or toasted um, or caramelized to different degrees to give off different flavors. So, you know, you can get one that tastes charred that matches the char on your vegetables in your grill. Um, You can get a chocolate barley malt to go with like a chocolate cake even or like a roasted kind of like a steak would be perfect. Uh, A caramelized barley malt goes with whenever you're caramelizing food, those melanoidin flavors. It just kind of sings with those. And then um, just really like light bready Pilsner goes well with like a ham sandwich with fresh bread. It's going to find those kind of croissant notes um, with like eggs in the morning. It's just... It's stunning the amount of stuff you can do. And the beauty with beer over wine is that beer has carbonation. So those bubbles can really scrub all the fat from your palate and cleanse your tongue and ready you for the next bite. So they kind of just clean everything up and get you going again. That is interesting. And also what I picked up from that is the ability to maybe start your meal with a beer have a dessert beer or when you're having an appetizer a different beer with your main course a different beer with your dessert a different beer yeah and if you go to a restaurant that's serious about uh beer service then they're usually they're going to be picking higher end beers that are not coming in pint glasses more and more beers are coming in 14 ounces sometimes even 10 ounces uh wine glass size and so it's like it's enough to match with your course without drinking a whole pint and feeling really full. Let's talk about some local restaurants that you know are really paying attention to these intricacies. Yeah, that's tough, I think, here in wow, Toronto. okay. I didn't expect that answer. Um, I maybe think worldwide, that beer somewhere is that still been. on the back burner in terms of pairing with food. It's an afterthought in most restaurants in the city. Um, there are no beer sommeliers I don't that are actually working the floor of a restaurant in the city I would love to see one there are plenty of certified Cicerones and Prud'homme beer sommeliers here in the city some of them are attending bar but they're not available to you know advise on pairings like a wine sommelier is and not a lot of fine dining establishments have amazing beer lists or sellers why do you think that is I still think that beer is like, it's just not as kind of high end as wine in the minds of not so much restaurateurs and chefs, because I think that's changing a lot, but the consumer. And so it's more difficult for them to sell, you know, uh, a $17 bottle of Saison DuPont, which is, you know, 750 ml, like a bottle of wine than, you know, a white wine to their customers. So if they're not moving the beer that quickly, they don't need a Cicerone on the floor. At the same time, if you had a Cicerone on the floor or someone managing your beer list and knowing how to communicate about beer with your customers, then maybe you would move more. So I think that if you had a restaurant that came out, especially a fine dining establishment that had a great reputation and really came out strong on beer, it would sort of lead the way for other restaurants. But it's as you know, a really busy industry and there's a lot to think about. And I think that beer just kind of gets pushed 
to the back burner or it's something that the bar manager is supposed to manage and right. the chef doesn't get involved with. So there's not a lot of integration between both. That being said, there are some great places in the city to go for beer and food. Like? Uh, the Beer Bistro. It's a classic. King and Young Street. Have you ever been? Love it. Yeah. Absolutely. Get a smoky beer with your duck fat fries. Yeah. Their head chef, Michelle, uh, started out there years ago and then went on to do other things and is now back as head chef. And she does beautiful things. Yeah. And a lot of it is those are those classic pairings like beer and mussels with, yeah, frites cooked in duck fat. But they really, really know how to make beer and food work together. They cook with a lot of beer. So I like to go there. It's really a safe bet and their beer list is really solid. Plus their servers know a ton. So if you're like somebody that wants to get more into beer and wants to be guided in terms of what to try, um, you should be able to say to them without saying anything about beer, here's what I like to eat. It's funny what would you, you recommend beer-wise? It's funny that you mentioned the Beer Bee Show because I think that's the only place that I actually go to. And I mentioned, I said a smoky beer. They actually have this almost beef <clears throat> jerky smoked beer on the tap that I actually think it comes from a bottle uh, that is I'm absolutely obsessed with because it doesn't make me think of beer. Yes. It makes me think of jerky or food. It's savory. Yeah. It's not sweet. Another one is the, the ephemer series yes the cassis the cranberry the Mm -hmm. apple it's almost like fruit punch like to me that's not beer and if it wasn't for beer bistro and their extensive menu i wouldn't have been able to find these smoky or fruity flavors to me beer is usually not on either of those spectrums at all it's down the middle it's something a little bit more i don't know if bland's the word but more like it tastes like a pilsner it tastes right tastes like a, a molson it tastes like a labat And I think that is like the old school thinking about beer. That's what we grew up drinking. And that's kind of like what I was raised on as well before I really started writing about beer as a columnist. That's what we were stealing out of our parents' fridge. And I never knew what to pick up in the LCBO until I started reading about it. Like I, I, Unfortunately, there's no easy way to say, how can I taste all these different beers unless you are willing to at least like read a beer column every once in a while or a beer blog post and say, oh, so-and-so said this is new and it's smoky in here. Like I usually write about like my top five beers at the LCBO right now or my top three and I try to make it short and quick Um, and then go and like try those or, you know, there's lots of beer bloggers, lots of beer columnists that are writing about new stuff. And then when you drink it, just pay attention to, oh, this is a stout. I don't like these kinds of styles. They're a little bit too, I don't like the coffee flavor in them. And then you kind of can kind of steer yourself from there in or out as you go. But um, like the cassis beers and the smoked beer are both available at the LCBO often, but you just don't know it, right? Because there's so much there and there's not a lot of guidance on the shelves. Especially because when I think of the LCBO, and I think most people think Liquor Control Board of Ontario, they're thinking dark liquors, bourbons, whiskeys, vodka, you know, wines, not so much beer. I think it's only in the last five-ish years has beer become more popular at the LCBO, especially because I think maybe this is just a marketing thing, but I think when I go to the beer store and that's our local uh, controlled by the government beer store, for lack of a better term, it's Canadian centric. There's a lot more Canadian beers there. I'm going to be able to find a lot more stuff that 
maybe is not so much on the European side, but if I were to go to LCBO, I, I'm going to be able to find, you know, tall cans from all over the world. And that's kind of the appeal with the LCBO is you can go buy a mix grab bag of all these different types of tall cans that maybe you can't get at the beer store. Or maybe I'm just ignorant to both because I'm not one to be going to the store in general to buy these types of beers. No, you're right. One thing to clear up is that the beer store is not owned by the government. The LCBO is. The beer store is owned by uh, brewers. Okay. So the beer store started out as a brewer's retail, a place for breweries to distribute their beer after prohibition. What it has become is a kind of oligopoly, which is owned by four major breweries. So AB InBev, which owns Budweiser. They're the biggest mega brewery company in the world. Massive. Uh, Molson Coors, Sleeman, and Moosehead. Those are the owners. So their brands are really prominent all the time. They're usually the only ones that have advertising displays, or they at least give themselves much more advertising space in there than everyone else and so craft brands are harder to find in there and they also charge craft brewers a listing fee to list their beers in the store so it's expensive for them to get in there you're amazing you are a wealth of knowledge yeah it's a very um hot debated topic right now in government and in the news um the beer store is obviously um defending its territory voraciously because it has a lot to lose if it loses the distribution channel that it owns um, so that's really important to know. The LCBO is government owned and the LCBO has made a concerted effort in the last five to 10 years to stock more and more craft beers and more and more interesting imports. So I want to talk about beers that aren't available in the LCBO, but can we say maybe a top beer choice that's on your mind lately that you can get out the LCBO before we move to the ones you can't get to the LCBO? Sure. Um, It's hard with the LCBO because a lot of their beers just come in seasonally. So I'll talk about some that are always there that I like that I think are great to start with like on a basic level. I love Black Oak Nut Brown. It's brewed here in Etobicoke. It's a brown ale with a kind of like naturally nutty flavor from the malt. It's beautiful and it's really, really food friendly because of those kind of caramelized nutty malt flavors. Um, Saison DuPont is usually there. It goes in and out. It comes in a big green bottle from Belgium. It is a classic Belgian farmhouse ale. Saisons are one of my favorite beers and I would say the most versatile when it comes to pairing with food. You could eat them with almost anything, almost like a champagne style of carbonation. You pop the cork on them. Very effervescent, beautiful, spicy, complex, amazing beers. Please try one. The Schlenkerla Rausch beer actually was my other pick and that's that smoky beer that I think is your favorite. Say it again. Schlenkerla. Okay. It's from Germany, from Bamberg, and it's an ancient style of beer that's produced by smoking the barley malts over beechwood flames, like over an open fire, which is how all malt used to be dried. So all beer used to be a little bit smoky or a lot smoky. This beer, 100% of the malts are smoked. So when you smell it, yeah, it's like um, bacon or um, like someone else said, um, smoked meat, that kind of smell. But I find the flavor is a lot lighter and it's still, it's a lager. So it's clean and it's beautiful. I love, I love that beer. It's, it's a love or hate beer. Smoked beers, you either love them or you hate them, but that's always there. And it's, I feel like it's a hidden gem on the shelves. So yeah, I think those three are great to start with. And I find 
stop me if I'm wrong, that that smoky beer, which I'm not going to try to name again after you, uh, is almost like the same kind of carbonation that a Guinness would have. It's less carbonated. It's not as a heavy carbonation, you know, as I would compare to a Canadian or Molson or, you know, a Coors. Um, Well, it is a lager, so it's fairly carbonated. I think that traditionally, like there are sort of flagship Canadian lagers are really, really carbonated. That's the style is to make them super, super bubbly. Um, so this will be less so, but it's not like nitrogen uh, fueled like a Guinness. So it's not as soft as a stout. Great answer. Let's talk about the beers that you cannot get at the LCBO. There are plenty of beers that you cannot get at the LCBO. Um, is sadly, that new? Is that a new thing? No, I mean, the problem with the LCBO is they only have limited shelf space, right? Is that the sadness so far? Yeah. So the best LCBOs in the city are Queen's Key and Summer Hill. They're the biggest. And Queen's Key is where the warehouse is, at least for now. So they get a lot of stock in first. And they usually have a lot of it in the back. Um, So if they're out, it's worth asking if they have any more. Um, Those are my two go-tos. Summer Hill is really well stocked as well. And those are also really good for wine and spirits. They're the best. Beyond the LCBO, my there's a lot of craft breweries starting up that aren't in there. Um, Bellwoods is the hot favorite, has been since they opened. They make beautiful beers. They span styles. A lot of their beers are kind of like American in style. They do a, a brown ale, a bunch of different IPAs, but they also do a ton of Belgians. And I love their sours. Have you ever had a sour beer before? No, I've had a whiskey sour. Is that in the same realm? Not really, but it has a sour flavor. I mean, I love sour kids, so I always joke that that's why I love sour beers. But um, sour beers are sort of made with, they can be made a number of different ways, but they're made with a wild yeast or a strain of bacteria that naturally sours the beer. And so you can do it with like a lactic acid which is sort of the same thing that you do to sour your yogurt. So it can get a really kind of clean, almost yogurty bite. That's one style. Um, other ones are usually they come from a strain called Britannomyces, which is if you ever mention it to a winemaker, he will cringe and run very far away from you. But breweries more and more are embracing it. And it's a strain of, uh, there are many different strains of Britannomyces, but it's like a wild yeast that can give your beer flavors anywhere from like kind of mango and pineapple. And especially when it's combined with other yeasts and bacterias to Things like farmhouse, barnyard, horse blanket, um, really kind of funky flavors. And so sour beers right now are extremely popular for beer nerds, but they're not that easy to find. I Bellwoods need to check these them. out. Yeah, yeah. I, need to, I go to Bellwoods. Uh, I've been a few times. The food is actually not bad either. Uh-huh. The atmosphere is very nice. For sure. So, uh, and, and my friends have been going because they're open till 11 o'clock. You can buy beer up to 11 o'clock from their little shop next to their, their restaurant, which is pretty interesting. I never thought independently run bars could do that i thought because of the regulations from our government we were kind of limited to where we could buy our beer so the reason bellwoods can do that is because it's a brewery so because it brews on premise it can sell beer from a retail shop that's connected to the brewery if they wanted to open a retail shop somewhere else in the city they couldn't 
now Bellwoods is opening a new production brewery, a bigger one. Um, I think around Dufferin somewhere. I heard DuPont and Davenport. Yes, you're probably right. In that old warehouse space. Mm -hmm. That's an eyesore. That big yeah. glass warehouse. I don't... Uh, I can't confirm. I'm sorry, but... No, I don't think... I can't either. These are just rumors I've heard. Yeah, but the uh, the big controversy is that the rules prevent you from opening more than one retail shop if you have more than one brewery. But by your explanation, you were saying that because they brew on premise, they can sell it on premise. Yeah, but only at one location. You so even if they have two locations that are brewing it, they can only sell it from one. Yep. Wow. What's why? Why are they preventing... so they're trying to change that? Like they're obviously yeah. there's right. just a lot of archaic old rules in the uh, Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario's books, um, and they're very very slow to change. Are there any other places like Bellwoods that are competing in Toronto? Um, you mean or that are locally? great to go to for beer? Yeah. Yeah, the Indie Ale House is one of my favorites, and it's great for food as well. Um, their food and their beer is uh, outstanding. It's a brew pub. It's in the Junction, mm -hmm. and they do tons of different beers, a lot of experimental stuff, and... It's usually very, very beautiful. They age in wine barrels. They use some wild yeast. They're great. I love to go there and drink their beer, and you cannot get it at the LCBO. One of the old kind of um, fathers of craft beer in the city is the Granite Brew Pub, and it's been family-run for, I think, uh, over 20 years now. And um, they make very traditional British-style ales, so your uncles would like it there. But uh, a lot of cask beer, they know how to do cask beer very well. So that's like hand uh, pumped and it is fermented in the cask. So it's going to be softer carbonation, uh, more natural and served at that cellar temperature. And they're kind of masters of that. So it's a really nice place to go to enjoy those kinds of beers. And just to reference where Bellwoods is, it's on the Ossington Strip by Queen. Uh, the One of the big news stories this year was a limited release of a beer at the LCBO that was brewed by monks. Does this ring a bell? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was West Valletta and 12. Can you, can you touch a little bit on this? Why people are lining up to get this limited supply made by monks of all people? Yeah, so... Uh, there are a number of beers, especially in um, in Belgium, that are brewed by monasteries or monks. They're under the label of Trappist breweries uh, because the orders of the monks are their Trappist monks, which sort of means they're really strict. So um, back in the day, they split from another sect of monks because they wanted to uh, adhere to their own principles, one of which is to sustain themselves independent of any kind of funding. And one of the ways they did that was to brew their own beer. And they really value hard work. And so they would brew beer to um, nourish themselves as well as sell it in order to plow that money back into the monastery or donate it to charity. So in order to be a Trappist brewery today, you still have to do those things. Um, monks generally are not at the forefront of brewing. I mean, they're sort of at the head and they're supervising the brewing and the brewing is done like in the monastery grounds, uh, usually in the traditional breweries, but 
I think partly because there just aren't that many monks left. They have uh, professionals in there and then the monks still oversee the process. And the most important things to the beer drinkers are like the yeast strains haven't changed. That's kind of where the magic is. The recipes are the same. And so you can get, you can taste beers brewed by monks. I think there are, I don't don't know exactly how many, nine Trappist breweries right now. Um, one of which actually just opened in America. So anyway, Westy 12 is was is like if you're going to get a monk's brewed beer, this is the one to get. Because West Valeteran never ever sells their beer except at the brewery. And if you ever, or sorry, at the monastery, you have to go there um, to get the beer, make an appointment, and um, they'll only sell you a six pack. I'm sure there are people that are still doing that, going yeah. another way to do that. So... For years, it's like if you could get your hand on a bottle of Westy 12, it's because a friend gave it to you or someone sold it on eBay on the black market. It was like the black market beer. The Westy 12 is sort of like as far as Belgian Trappist beers go, it's called the quadruple. So you start with there's um, a double, a triple, and a quadruple. The quadruple being the strongest and kind of like the granddaddy of all of the beers. It's anywhere from like eight to 12%. It's really dark and fruity, ruminating, um, sometimes even port-like, a lot of uh, beautiful with like strong cheeses, extremely intense. It's sort of like the pinnacle of that expression if you really like big, big, bold beers. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a beautiful beer. And I think that part of the reason for its popularity is because it was so rare and you had to make this pilgrimage to get it and you can only get six bottles. Then the monastery ran out of money and needed to do major renovations. So they decided to scale up the brewing and sell a bunch of it for the first time ever around North America for, I believe it sold for around $70 for three beers in a glass. So three bottles of beer in a glass, 70 bucks. Wow. And many people who hadn't tried Westy 12 lined up to get it um, because it was the first time they could ever try it. Have you tried it? I've tried it at the Beer Bistro. So they usually have a little bit um, of the older stuff in their cellar. So when we were studying to be a Cicerone, they brought some out for us to taste. And I don't, I did not line up for the new stuff. To be honest, I think it's a little bit overrated. Um, it's a great, it's a beautiful beer. I definitely couldn't make it. I couldn't make most of the beers out there though. But I think that a lot of Trappist quadruple beers are just as delicious and much easier to get. Um, It's just that because this one, the rarity of it is what makes it so special. And that's what kind of makes any consumer good special. So you are an avid home brewer. Uh, I wouldn't say avid. I brew every couple months. And you just... So you, I mean, you just said it, but you're saying that you know how to maybe small batch an average beer that you could pick up at the LCBO? No, I don't think that anyone would buy my beer. <laughs> <laughs> but you know how to make it? I'm, I'm, maybe I'm yeah, a little... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I started brewing at home because I wanted to understand the brewing process uh, sure. in a fundamental way. I'm not, I don't have an engineering mind. Uh, I'm a writer and, uh, you know, I wanted to be a poet when I was younger. So when I was trudging around breweries with my rubber boots on, I was having some tuning out times when the brewers were ha- talking about, the, you know, the fermentation and the temperature controls. I would just kind of zone out and I would try not to. So I thought the only way for me to really understand this and become a beer expert is to brew the stuff myself. And you're 
Altbeer won a silver medal at the Toronto Beer Week Home Brewing Awards. It did. I think there were seven entries in that category. So very prestigious. Um, Yeah, no, we, uh, an Altbeer is a sort of cross between a lager and an ale. And it needs to like a lager cold condition for a long time. But it is brewed with an ale yeast. Um, And then it's um, fermented at really cold temperatures. So it kind of tames that yeast and makes a really clean kind of um, malty, uh, beautiful brew. And ours turned out really well. We, um, it's really cold in the entrance of my loft. So we just left it there in a carboy um, for like three or four months and then bottled it. And I think that was the key to, uh, to creating that kind of lagered effect. Um, so yeah, I've learned, I've learned a lot about the, like what goes into making a beer style and also the various ingredients in beer by actually getting my hands on them and brewing with them myself. And that's mainly why I brew beer. The second reason I brew is because, um, it's super bonding. So I do not brew alone. I brew with, uh, a couple of my brother-in-laws and there is no way that the four of us would hang out for six hours alone, like without our spouses, if we weren't brewing beer. And so <laughs> it's really, really fun. Or drinking the yeah, beer. Yeah, and after. we drink other beer, like from my stash. So we brew at my house and I have a ton of beer there all the time. So we drink, we eat, we make beer, we talk. And, you know, sometimes our husbands and our wives are there because these are my sister's husbands. And it's just really like, it's just a great way to stay close to them and stay in touch with them and just hang out in like a non-pressure, it's Christmas time environment. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, I think brewing beer is amazing. It's like cooking. It's like making soup. It's not as hard as people imagine. It's very easy and it's actually very easy to start. Um, The main, like a lot of the equipment you need, you don't need to buy right away if you started um, with um, your malt already in a liquid form. And then you can just dump it into a bucket on your stove, add some hops, boil it, and then uh, let it ferment for a bit. But yeah, it's quite easy. We need to have you back just to talk about home brewing. I mean, there's a million questions that we didn't get to today that we're going to have to probe you for. And you can ask questions and reach Crystal on her website, crystalluxmore.com. C at crystalluxmore.com is your email address. Uh, it would probably be better if they just contacted me at my Gmail address. Which is? It's crystal.luxmore at gmail.com. Crystal Luxmore is a Toronto-based beer writer and editor. As one of the only 46 certified Cicerones in Canada and one of 25 Perdome beer sommeliers. She also leads guided tastings, workshops, and brewery tours. She's a full-time beer writer with a regular column in Sun Media. And her Sudsea scribbles have appeared in the Globe and Mail. En Route and Canadian Business. This year, Crystal launched Luxie's Beer School, a series of one-off classes exploring trending beer styles like sours and saisons, some of which we've discussed today. She's also the host of Beer Working, a networking event for young professionals with beer at its center. Crystal leads beer tasting, seminars, beer and food pairing workshops, team building events, and dinners for corporate clients, and speaks at major food and drink festivals, including the Toronto Festival of Beer and the Delicious Food Show. There's nothing she loves more than talking about beer except drinking it. I'd like to thank my guest, Crystal Luxmore, for joining us on Speaking Duck today. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. We're going to talk so much about next time about 
beer fest and home brewing and I'm going to try a whole bunch of stuff now. I'm going to tell you some of my experiences. And yeah, I'm really excited to try beers by monks, try beers that aren't in the LCBOs and really just do the samples. I can't wait to go to a restaurant and just sample the hell out of some local beers. That sounds amazing. I can't wait to hear about it. Thank you so much, Crystal. Thank you. Later, Speaking Duckers. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Never Sleeps Network.